Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every week. I'm Jess Farmery, and with me today, I've got Hugh Penton from the Somax team and Adma Barry making her Health Tech Pigeon debut. Welcome. Hey. Hi, Jess. Uh, Adama, how are you feeling? Your first ever appearance on the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. I'm excited. Um, it should be good. We've got some good stories. And um, yeah, I feel like it'll be a good a good episode. Fingers crossed. Hugh, how's your week been? How are you feeling about your possibly 100th appearance on the Health Tech Pigeon podcast? I don't think we've hit 100 yet, but when we do, <laughs> I'm having cake. Yeah, it's been a good week. Thanks, Jess. How about you? <laughs> Um, yeah, it's been good. The mention of um, pigeon cake has, um, sounds very exciting to me. Um, and absolutely, on the 100th episode, I will personally create us a pigeon-shaped cake. That's a promise. And I, one I'll hold you to, yeah. Yes, as Adam mentioned, we've got an excellent crop of stories to cover this week. So let's get straight into it. So our first story this week comes from The Independent and Anthony Cuthbertson, who has reported that scientists have discovered a way to test whether someone is diabetic by having them speak just a few sentences into their smartphone. A team from the US-based Click Labs have created an AI model capable of distinguishing whether a person has type 2 diabetes from 6 to 10 seconds of voice audio, with tests revealing an 89% accurate weight for women and 86% for men. Um, so this is a very, very cool um, study. Um, and possibly with this AI model, um, I'm assuming they could play a sample of the podcast, the model, um, and then we'll be able to know whether any of us are diagnosed with diabetes. Yeah, a doctor dropped into my DMs the other day and I'm genuinely worried that they've listened to a bit of the podcast through this. So, yeah, I think this presents a exciting slash terrifying new future of the screening for diabetes. Yeah, according to one of the researchers, researchers from Click Labs, um, their research highlights significant vocal variations between individuals with and without type 2 diabetes. Um, so it doesn't say exactly what um, the variations are, apart from using signal processing, the scientists were able to detect subtle changes in pitch and intensity that are imper- imperceptible to the human ear. Um, so I guess the key point here is that it is it's not any doctor who can just listen to you speaking and instantly diagnose you. Um, this is so subtle changes that it has to be the their specific AI algorithm who will um, perform the diagnosis. And their study involved analysing 18,000 recordings. Um, so plenty of data have been fed into this model. Yeah, this is really exciting one, isn't it? I mean, it offers a huge amount of hope for screening programmes. Uh, I think you know, you'll no longer have to go to your doctor or go um, into a medical facility to find out whether you have diabetes. Uh, it's absolutely incredible. 250 million people living with diabetes who don't know it, apparently. And this could rapidly and efficiently find out, you know, or at least identify who those people are and how. And I'll be interested to see whether this is going to be deployed. Uh, is it going to be that you're, you know, you can detect it via having conversations with your doctor, or will it be randomly deployed in certain settings or certain environments? No, Hugh. I was also um, wondering how this was going to be deployed in practice to reach the patients who need it. Um, possibly this could be something that health insurers could um, have as part of their packages that everyone who signs up for health insurance with them would have to um, submit voice recordings um, in order to have certain conditions. Um, 
diagnosed. It's quite interesting though, because I'm really interested to see sort of who first went out and said, let's try and detect diabetes through voice recordings. It's the second story, second week in a row, we've had a story where AI can diagnose something by listening to you speak, which is absolutely fantastic. For diabetes, though, obviously diagnosis seem, you know, and the condition seems to present in so many different forms. You can detect diabetes through um, measurement of the eye. You seem to be able to detect it through measurement of the voice now. So I wonder, I wonder, you know, at least combining these two, you're going to see a lot more um, di- early diagnosis of diabetes. But I wonder which will turn out to be the most efficient, which will turn out to be the most effective diagnosis form. And... Uh, particularly which will be the most accessible for people in terms of actually uh, turning up new cases and screening early. Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering now which is the next condition which is going to be diagnosed via the voice. Uh, maybe we'll get into a position in, I don't know, the next 10 years where all you have to do is provide your doctor with a 10-second voice recording and they'll do a full-body health check just from the voice sample. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting and I think I'm kind of curious to know what other health conditions this kind of uh, use of AI is going to detect because even in the article it does says that it could be expanded to diagnose other health conditions. So it's just kind of interesting to see how far this will go and how useful it will be um, to detect obviously diabetes and other things as well. So yeah, it's just interesting to see. Completely. I'll be honest, this story set me off thinking, what else can you diagnose with the voice? And I found a great article from about 10 years ago on The Verge. So, you know, really diving back into the archives at the moment. um, That was about how anything from Alzheimer's to Parkinson's to ADHD can be diagnosed by listening to the voice. So, I mean, if a clinician wants to jump on here and tell me how I'm absolutely wrong, or in fact, a data scientist, that would also be useful. Um, But I can't see why in the future... AI couldn't be trained to measure the same things that observation of the voice should be. So, you know, uh, that uh, six-second clip for your doctor to diagnose your full, absolutely everything that's wrong with you in one go could be reality (laughs) sooner than we might like to admit. Thanks, guys. So if we um, that is a perfect segue onto the next story which we're going to be looking at today. And this is a piece from The Standard, written by Storm Newton. Um, and experts have said we need to close the AI confidence gap in order to make it a powerful force for good. So there's been a survey carried out by the British Standards Institution who found that almost half of people in the UK support using artificial intelligence to bring down NHS waiting lists. Um Although more work must be done to build public trust in the technology if the UK is to keep up with other economies. So I think, well, this isn't particularly new news um, to most of us. And this can just be summarised as people are scared and intimidated by technologies they don't understand as a general rule. Even the most helpful um, and yeah, potentially useful technologies. Um, so, in order to bring the public along with any um, integrations of AI into the NHS, um, the most important thing to do is to educate the public about how these technologies actually work um, and the benefits which they can bring to patients and to the NHS as a whole. Anyone else want to come in and say anything on that one? I mean, this is a pet peeve of mine: is awkwardly worded. Um, public attitude surveys that uh, put together by companies trying to validate their own 
existence, which is is not to say that the BSI doesn't serve a really valuable purpose, but it does. I do enjoy the fact that, well, it's not a fact. I'm presuming this, uh, but I'm assuming that the people that they surveyed received an, a, a, a questionnaire which included the question, do you support the use of artificial intelligence to bring down record NHS waiting lists? And frankly, I'm almost shocked that 40, 49% was the number. <laughs> I would imagine that there are presumably many other things that you could support to bring down NHS waiting lists, but artificial intelligence can certainly help, particularly when it comes to dealing with pretty much everything that we always talk about, bringing, you know, reducing clinician uh, burnout, helping with administrative tasks, um, faster diagnosis and referral. I think all of these things are capable. So it's, it's perhaps more of an indictment than they actually point out here that, that, more people don't support it. You know, fifty-one percent apparently don't. So, I mean, obviously the answer is standards and regulation, but I think there's also a, a bit of a bigger engagement piece to do, which, from this week's newsletter, we also see is something that is happening. Um, the NHS are reaching out to, con- to conduct some large-scale engagement events. Uh, what they'll look like, I'm really excited to see uh, to help inform people about what it actually does mean to use digital and data in their health and AI and is obviously going to be a part of that. Yeah, I'm somewhat sceptical about the results of this survey um, because I think most of the people who would have been surveyed probably are not regular listeners to Health Tech Pigeon and therefore don't quite understand the nuances of how AI can be deployed um, to bring down waiting lists. So when asked if they support or do not support the use of AI to bring down waiting lists, probably more of a gut instinct they're going off rather than any real understanding of the implications of using the technology. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, uh, only 54% of people were excited about how AI can improve the accuracy of medical diagnoses. So we know that, I mean, that we know for certain 46% of people surveyed don't listen to Pigeon because <laughs> if they did, they'd be more excited. Absolutely. Um, someone should write to the British stand. Maybe someone should write to the British Standards Institution and recommend that they encourage more people to listen to Health Tech Pigeon if they want to increase the excitement rates of AI adoption. No, yeah, that is really true. I think that when working in the space that we're in, obviously we talk about AI a lot, we know about AI a lot, but I think your average Joe doesn't have much knowledge on AI and what it does. I think most people just think it's obviously chat GPT and something that can create funny looking photos and things like that. So I think the limited understanding, limited knowledge would obviously bring these kind of results. Um, so like you said before, it's not groundbreaking, it's not new, it's not like jaw-dropping um, stats. So I think to get people more confident and um, less hesitant towards the eye, definitely education is a big deal. Um, so yeah, I second the notion to um, make everybody listen to the Health Opinion podcast every week so that they'll know everything there is to know about AI. Uh, it's it's going to be a strict regime that we bring forward for <laughs> uh, for the people of this country. So it'll be interesting to see in perhaps another year's time how um, planned initiatives to engage the public um, and educate the public on the use of AI, um, digital and data in the NHS impacts um, this confidence gap. So um yeah, let's circle back to this in a year's time and see what the next British Standards Institute survey has to say. 
Right, so our next story is a digital therapeutics raise. So a company called Stroll with three L's, which um, who are digital therapeutics software developers for Parkinson's disease, has secured £2.1 million worth of investment for their digital therapeutics software for commercially available augmented reality glasses. And they transform physiotherapy and rehabilitation for people living with neurological disorders, including Parkinson's. So they describe themselves on the website, the solution's called Reality DTX, and they call themselves the world's first patented augmented reality solution for curing therapy and gamified exercise to improve gait, balance, and reduce fall risk for people with Parkinson's disease and other neurological disorders. And they claim to be able to enhance the patient experience, convenience, and access to rehabilitation, um, ultimately reducing the cost burden on families and the healthcare systems. So this is obviously fascinating stuff. Uh, I am hastily updating the newsletter to add that third L. Um, but as soon as that's done, we can talk about it even more. Yeah, augmented reality glasses. We've heard a lot of um, hype about how they will be transformative for health outcomes and lots of suggestions about how they could um, help people improve their health outcomes. But I've not seen many practical use cases um, come out yet. Um, actually, most of the um, reviews that I've seen of these glasses have just been how they make people feel motion sick when they try and use them for therapies. So this is one of the first yeah, practical use cases I've seen for augmented reality glasses. Uh, I don't think that, that it's um, available to buy yet because when I went on the website, I just had the option to be added to a mailing list. Um, but in the article from the business desk, uh, it mentioned that they were currently in NHS pilot phase. Um, so hopefully this will be more widely available to Parkinson's patients imminently, especially now they've got that race to accelerate progress. One thing that's not super clear to me is whether you'll be expected to use it in the in the clinic or whether it's something that you can you'll be able to take home and that will help you uh, when you're at home. And I think because it mentions families uh, and helping families to uh, support rehabilitation as well. So be very interested to see whether this is a this is being marketed more of a more of a in the clinic NHS device, or whether it'll be something that uh, will have consumer applications too for helping helping elderly relatives uh, with their rehabilitation. I think from um, from my reading of the article, I understood that patients are able to access it from their homes. Um, perhaps they'll be provided with um, the augmented reality glasses by the clinic, um, so that they can take them home and do their rehabilitation exercises. Yes, because it says that patients will be allowed to receive seven times more therapy using only a third of the clinician's time. So I assume that they'll be able to use them outside of the hospital setting. Uh, I mean, that's got to be quite an interesting thing then. and it's most likely going to have implications for funding, I suppose. Um, as you said, Jess, the, the kind of applications of augmented reality um, are few and far between. And- <laughs> The uh, the point about nausea and uh, feeling balanced. I think they may be they may actually be leaning into that to actually support to some of the at least the effects there. I, I do sort of wonder what the cost implications will be for clinics and whether whether the kind of long term sustainability or viability of this is is going to be there. But I think if it is and we can get them out and the, uh, the successes in pilots translate into a larger scale i think this is going to be very interesting 
So yeah, moving on to our next story from Pharma Forum. It's good news for the 2 million people who suffer from lower back pain um, in the UK because seven new digital health interventions have been approved by NICE for use for patients on the waiting list for treatment with lower back pain, um, which apparently is accountable for nearly a third of GP consultations every year and is also the biggest cause of disability in the UK. Um, so I'm sure that many of the listeners to this podcast have experienced lower back pain, understand how debilitating it can be, how much it can get in the way of your work, family life, just normal day-to-day activities. So these technologies include ACT for pain, Get You Better, Hinge Health, which I assume is not a variation of the dating app Hinge and is something very different, Kaya, Pathway Through Pain, self back and support back so i don't know if anyone has any um favorites out of those names i like get you better and support back pretty good names there and there are two others mentioned ascenti reach and flow engage who can only be used in research um, until more information is provided on there. I mean, aside from a bit of an, being a bit of an indictment in digital therapeutics tendency to name themselves really, really badly, this is actually quite good news, I think. And I think um, probably a nice thing to touch upon is just how many of these digital therapeutics um, that NICE seem to be coming out and recommending for various conditions over the last year. It's been there've been quite a few coming out uh, for use in the NHS, for use by patients, um, for use uh, supported and un- aided and unaided. So I think this is uh, this is quite a nice story. Um, some, yeah, and I think uh, one of the kind of key things is that a lot of the recommendations that come out are all about reducing inequalities in access, which is also nice as well. This uh, and these technologies, um, nice as said, are for back pain that can't be linked to any particular condition, which um, I don't know about anyone else, but pretty much anyone over the age of 30, many people underneath will be suffering from that kind of back pain. So this is a nice touch, I think. Um, No pun intended. Uh. (laughs) I don't know. You said the names aren't great, but I'd quite like Kinchelf. So I don't know about that that comment, but... Yeah, I think it's great, really. Like you said, many people suffer with back pain. And trust me, you don't have to be over the age of 30 to be suffering from back pain. So, yes, it looks really good. And I hope um see more of it. Uh, if we're going by name alone, I'm going for Get You Better. It feels like there's a promise in there that the others don't have. Yeah, and I like it's the use of the letter U, real uh, 90s texting throwback there. Uh, But yeah, before we um, finish today's episode, definitely want to um, give a special shout out to an article which is included in the newsletter version of Pigeon this week um, on the rise and fall of Babylon, written by Sifted's Kai Nicole Schwartz. So anybody who uh, listened to our Pigeon episode on the rise and fall of Babylon, which was put out a few months ago, and if you enjoyed it, you definitely want to be reading this article, which is um, another deep dive. Um, featuring several interviews with people um, very, very close to um, Ali Parsa and to the rest of the Babylon team. Um, So yeah, definitely, if you're going to read one article that we recommend in Pigeon this week, um, uh, make it that sifted um, article from Kai on Rise and Fall of Babylon. 
terrifyingly, we only did our podcast seven weeks ago, so a lot's changed and a lot's moved on since then. It's felt like a very long September and October. <laughs> also check out the Health Tech Pigeon newsletter to find some great job opportunities in health tech, including from Zoe, um, Novartis and Dr. Doctor. So thanks for listening to another episode of the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. Um, well done, Adma, on your fantastic podcast debut. We'll hope to have you back um, week after week. And... <laughs> thanks as always Hugh for your um, devotion to the podcast appearance um, yeah we'll see you next week everyone have a good one mm-hmm.